Welcome to the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast series, which can be heard on VHHA.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, and wherever you get podcasts. We're a member of the Public Health Podcast Network, the Virginia Audio Collective, the New York City Podcast Network, and the Family Podcast Network. We're on the radio each Saturday at noon and Sunday at 10 a.m. on 100.5 FM, 92.7 FM, 107.7 FM, and 820 a.m. across Central Virginia and 1650 in Hampton Roads, and Wednesdays at 1 p.m. on 93.9 FM in Richmond. Please send any questions, comments, feedback, or guest suggestions to pcfpodcast at vhha.com. Again, that's pcfpodcast at vhha.com. And today we're excited to be joined by Dr. Raj Sundar, a family physician working in Washington State for Kaiser Permanente. He joins us to talk about his clinical work and his efforts around health equity and cross-cultural fluency, or at least cross-cultural understanding, to better serve diverse patients. We'll get to that and more in just a moment. But first, welcome to the program, Dr. Sundar. Thank you for having me, Julian. Well, it's our pleasure. And again, thanks for joining us. So to get us going, let's just start with a bit of level setting. Other than some email exchanges and some internet-based research to learn more about you, this is our first actual conversation. And it may be the first time that some of our listeners are having exposure to you as well. So just to begin with, if you would tell us about, and the listening audience, about some of the essential things that we should know about you, perhaps including your journey to becoming a physician. Yeah, that's that's probably a little bit of a long story, but I'll just maybe start with the fact that doctoring is kind of a family trade in my family, uh, meaning my dad's a doctor, my mom is, my cousins, my aunt, my uncle. So when I was growing up, they would ask me what kind of doctor I wanted to be, <laughs> not who I wanted to be when I was growing up. And I thought that was normal, right? But there has a backstory to it because, you know, my grandparents grew up in poverty and my grandfather thought making his family full of doctors was going to be the way out of poverty. And that has been our family story. But eventually, you know, I came to the U.S., joined my parents, and I've been here for more than 20 years now. And in many ways, mine has been a life of privilege. Uh, and I was not as close to poverty and the village life that my grandparents were part of. So after I became a doctor, I really became passionate about what should my impact be being a doctor other than just finding a personally fulfilling journey and making sure my financial health is safe. There's all these goals that was instilled in me growing up, again, because we were so close to poverty when we were growing up in India. And I really found myself trying to understand what it means to be a better healer. And that is what led me to the journey of understanding how to serve culturally diverse patients better. And I'll say, Julian, there's one other thing. I do have a connection to Virginia because I actually spent most of my life in North Carolina. I went to UNC Chapel Hill, and my wife worked in Richmond with Danny Avula, who's, I think, the commissioner of Department of Social Services yes. now. <laughs> and the last connection is I love shindigs, which is in Richmond. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I, I still think about that cake shop. <laughs> yeah, cakes and banana pudding and all kinds of stuff. Well, those are good Richmond references. And Dr. Avula has been a past guest on the Patients Come First podcast. As you said, he is the commissioner of the State Department of Social Services now. In a previous life, he was one of the regional health district directors. And then during the COVID pandemic, he was elevated to an important role in the COVID response, the statewide clinical medical COVID response. So Danny Avula is a friend of the podcast, so I always like to hear his name. You've described yourself, Dr. Sundar, as a full-spectrum physician, which in relation to healthcare is generally understood to mean whole person or whole family family care that covers a wide range of domains of care within family medicine. In a world of clinical specialization, I wonder if you could tell me about your personal philosophy as it relates to full spectrum care. 
Yeah, there's so many probably things to unpack in that statement, full spectrum physician. But being in the West Coast, you know, right now I'm practicing medicine in Washington State. There's a breadth of practice that I continue to maintain, even though I'm in a larger city. I'm close to Seattle right now. I take care of all ages. And then I also do prenatal care and I deliver the babies for the mothers that I do prenatal care at a hospital close by. And then I take care of the newborns after they're delivered. It's what you imagined full spectrum care could be in a rural place, but I'm able to do in as close to a city because there's so much value to continuity, relationships, and knowing the whole family dynamic. And I also do procedures, colposcopies, and all kinds of other things in my office. Again, that relationship really helps me take care of the person when they're anxious, knowing the context of their family, and being with them through different points of their life in different important moments. But more than that, I think nowadays what full-spectrum physician should mean is thinking about what else does it take to care for this person in front of you. Because we're still so focused sometimes on addressing the illness or the disease or the body system and asking ourselves what it means to take care of the person. And that means understanding the culture. And we've talked now, I think, the idea of social determinants of health is common lingo. So understanding people's social health. Because we know all of those aspects contribute to the health of the person. And when you're thinking full spectrum, how are you involved in all those levels? doesn't mean you have to solve all of them. It could mean you just advocate for them. You could be a writer. You could be somebody in your organization speaking up. But just making sure you have a role in all those domains. Well, and that's a great segue to the next question. You reference social determinants of health and emphasis on health equity and on really addressing some of those root causes, as you said, maybe not always solving all of the problems, but being aware of them. I know that some of that approach informs your focus on these issues. We've talked about and you've alluded to culturally responsive care from a clinical perspective. As we mentioned in the intro, cross-cultural understanding seems to be a point of emphasis for you. You've talked about your family background in India and then dealing with diverse patient populations where you are in Washington outside of Seattle. You've taken that beyond the four walls in several ways, one of which is hosting the Healthcare for Humans podcast, which is something of a learning experiment, it seems. I've listened to a couple episodes where you share with other clinicians, to use your words, the things that patients expect us to know that we don't know yet to help people become, and you use this term already, better healers for culturally diverse communities. You do this by hosting guests from different ethnic communities, in many cases, folks who aren't clinicians, but who have expertise and other subject matter areas to share context and perspective on unique cultural traits and idiosyncrasies that are specific to different groups. And certainly that is very helpful in just being able to relate to and interact with people and understanding that social cues or things that we here in one country might take as an acceptable sign, a sign of respect, other people might be put off by that because in their culture, it means something different. So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit more about the podcast, its origins, and what you hope to do with it and how you hope it will grow or what your future plans for it are. Yeah, all good questions, Julian. And I would say this is probably the part two of my story. I told you part one and I decided, you know, I want my journey and becoming a family physician and being a doctor to be something different outside of myself. And then when I was trying to figure out what that was, especially for these diverse communities, whether they're diverse culturally or just diverse because they're different than me, how do I care for them in the way they want to be cared for? I kept getting stuck. And I think the most vivid and explicit examples are when they're from different countries and hold different values and beliefs that seems to contrast with what we hold or what I hold here. 
when I tried to solve this problem, you know, I would frantically look for resources. And people probably know this, the idea of culturally competent care has been around for a long, long time, really. And if you, you can Google it and a lot of resources will come up and lots of websites. And they talk about, you know, what people say, as you alluded to, like how to not mess up and say the wrong thing and what people wear and what their general ideas and beliefs are. But I found that reading this didn't actually make me a better healer because there's a few problematic things with just how that topic was approached. One, it was like othering, right? Some people may have heard that term before, but mm -hmm. it's the idea that I am the standard reference point. I'm the normal person and all these people are the others. We're kind of exotic. We'll study them kind of like we're in a zoo. And that feeling was just prevalent in a lot of the resources. Two, it ended up stereotyping people because it put people in boxes. And we'll, we'll talk about how to address that specific part of it. But it made me think that there should be a better way. And then the third is it made it seem like there was a checkbox. Okay, I read that article. I know how they say hi. I know how not to say hi. Okay, now I'm really ready to take care of the population. But after doing all of that, I researched, I read all the articles, and I showed up, the patient in front of me in a room trying to care for them, and I still was stuck. Whether it was a Somali patient who wanted a vaginal delivery but got a C-section, she was healthy, baby was healthy, but she was so disappointed that she didn't have a vaginal delivery. Or a Hawaiian patient that I saw that did not want to take care of her diabetes and her A1C was 11.2, and she just felt like it wasn't important. So I didn't feel like I had answers to these. And then I kept thinking about how could I actually figure out what to do next? And it ended up being that it wasn't all on me. And then I decided to engage with the community. And we talk about community engagement a lot right now. And I knew the power of voice, just how important voice can be to capture nuance mm -hmm. and hear directly from the people doing the work, right? So I decided to ask community leaders, people who were experts in their community who had lived experience, to talk about where healthcare was falling short. And then since I was doing the work and I really felt like it was helping me, I decided to amplify that and create a platform for these voices through the podcast that you mentioned, Healthcare for Humans podcast. And for people who are interested in that podcast, you can access that at www.healthcareforhumans.org. Again, that's www.healthcareforhumans.org. And then Dr. Sundar, I imagine beyond the website, is it on any other podcast hosting apps or platforms where you would direct people to find it? Yeah, it's on all podcast platforms. So if you go to the website, you can even click the link. But it's on Apple, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcast. Okay. And then you just alluded to community engagement. And that does bring us to our next question. In addition to this podcast and your own research work and really just trying to become more culturally aware, more culturally sensitive as you deal with diverse patient groups where you are there outside of Seattle. I understand that you also have been a leader in an organization called Health Equity Action Team, or HEAT, the acronym, which has, as I gather, yep. hundreds of folks who are working in healthcare equity by forums, community organizing, things like that. Tell me a little bit about that project, if you will. Yeah, there's so much to talk about there as well, but I want to take a pause. I think it's worth clarifying this idea of cultural awareness still. And I doing these episodes, there are so many moments that we fall short in. And I want to focus on one example that really helps people understand what I'm talking about when we talk about cultural safety, which is not just the idea of understanding people's culture, but also understanding the power differences between each other. And this will link to the community work that you just mentioned as well, Julian. Because I think a lot of times with cross-cultural care, we're still talking about individual encounters. 
But there's so much history and context to understand, even with individual encounters. So I use this example of a patient that I was talking with, a Hawaiian patient. And what I learned through the podcast, which I think a lot of people in Seattle were doing, was that when people encounter Hawaiian patients, the first thing they want to bring up is their most recent vacation to Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And that seems like a reasonable thing to do because that's the land that you're from. And I went there. Maybe we can connect. And we're always trying to build rapport poor, build relationship, especially when we meet somebody new for the first time. But, you know, and when I talk to community leaders and Native Hawaiians, they say that's the worst thing that you could be doing because you don't really understand. The reason I'm not in Hawaii right now is because of tourism, mm -hmm. because people made it so expensive for me to live there. And it's the reason I can't even go back and visit my family anymore. So you talking about going on vacation there and having fun, is the exact wrong thing you should be saying to build rapport with me. And then in a moment of vulnerability and in a relationship that they'll have to build with you and listen to your recommendations. So I'm just bringing that idea in because it is also understanding the power dynamics as you as the clinician or community leader and the patient in front of you. You know, there's always dynamics in that relationship, but also the historical context and how that could relate to any given interaction. As you said, you know, we all want to find some point of commonality. It's a natural human instinct to try to relate, but sometimes even our best efforts can fall short, can be perhaps even cringe-inducing. As you said, you know, in the example of Hawaiian Islanders who are native who are no longer living there, talking about your tropical family vacation may not be the thing they want to hear. So no, that makes absolute yeah. sense, even though from the part of the clinician who's making that reference or that callback to them, they probably think... It's a harmless throwaway comment, but the receiver hears it very differently. Exactly. And it, like, being absolutely generous for the clinician, right? <laughs> because sometimes I say that to her and they're like, okay, I'm never telling anybody I went to Hawaii again. <laughs> and I'm like, no, 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 that's not the point. The point is just that this situation could be different. So you probably should lead with more questions. Maybe you instead ask, like, when's the last time you were home? Mm -hmm. And maybe they said, I just went last month. And you could totally share your vacation to Hawaii. Right. Or they said they haven't been in a few years, right? That context is helpful. Right. So I think your original question about the community engagement work, you know, I lead a team called the Health Equity and Action Team as well. And with that, we have 500 members that we're really mobilizing for change. And I think we've talked about the different levels of work I'm involved in, and I think we talked about the domains of what contributes to people's health. But with the HEAT, which is the Health Equity and Action Team, my hope is to use community organizing principles to make change because there's so many ways to make change. You know, we look to people with authority, with power. We look for advocacy, policy changes. But community organizing is another specific way we all can make change. And that's based on this person named Marshall Gantz, who studied at Harvard, who helped mm -hmm. with some of the farmer movement. And you may know him. I'm familiar with that. But there are specific principles and models, and I'll just use one just so people understand what that entails. Like one idea with community organizing is trying to figure out how can we use the resources we have to turn it into the power we need to make the change we want. So really focusing on self-reflection and using what we have to make change. And with the Health Equity and Action team, it's a community-driven project, but also an organizational-driven project because a lot of employees get care through our own health system. So we're always trying to figure out where does our equity strategy fall short and what should we be mobilizing on the ground and making changes at a policy level or in the specific operational changes that could be really meaningful for you. 
And one example is we've really talked about weight and weight bias because a lot of people, especially people of color, felt like they were actually discriminated because of their fatness. And I'll say that because their body size was different and their complaints were being ignored and they weren't being listened to. And on top of their blackness, their fatness was another reason people were ignoring them in our health system. So we mobilized around that and had conversations to talk about weight bias, which people actually don't talk about often enough. And it's not part of many equity strategies, but it was so important for the people in the community and within our organization. We were able to make specific changes that meant the world to them because it was a constant struggle to go to a visit and experience these microaggressions and trauma. And one specific example was just asking to be weighed every single visit. They show up at the doctor, they were just there last week, but they're weighed again. They're weighed over and over and everybody, whether they meant it or not, started shaming them for their weight and for not losing in between clinical visits. So we changed that policy, so we asked permission to be weighed. And there was such a simple change. We just say, do you want to be weighed today? And they could say no. But that was such a big change for the people who were experiencing this trauma over and over. And I think that just illustrates that small things can really have a big and powerful impact. So that's a great example you cited there. One thing, this is slightly off topic, but one thing that's happening here in Virginia right now, and our legislature is in session, is we as an association with the blessing of our members have engaged in a early adopter of what is hoping to be a nationwide campaign to really look at some of the job forms and the licensing and credentialing forms for clinicians so as not to stigmatize individuals who may have previously had mental health challenge or sought mental health treatment, but not making that a stigmatizing barrier to being a working, functioning clinician, especially in a time where we have healthcare staffing shortages and challenges. So not the same thing, but sort of an example of thinking through processes and how we apply those processes and how seemingly small things can have an outsized impact, even unintended in so many ways. So I appreciate that example. We've covered a lot of ground here. I do want to be respectful of your time. So we're going to start to circle the plane and bring it towards the runway here. To close on the podcast, after we deal with weighty and heavy subjects, we'd like to close with two more lighthearted questions. These questions are intended to give our listeners a sense of who our guests are beyond the work they do. And so to keep things interesting, Dr. Sundar, we have developed a list of 10 mystery questions from which you can choose. So if you give me two numbers, I will ask you the corresponding questions. One and five. Okay, one. In the hypothetical scenario that you could anticipate your final day on Earth, what would your last meal be? <laughs> uh, wow, these are great questions, Julian. It would be my favorite meal growing up, which is dosa, which a lot of people, when they think of Indian food, I think they think of rice, naan, paratha, but mm -hmm. in South India, where I'm from, Tamil Nadu, dosa, which is like a crepe, mm -hmm. uh, but it's not sweet is fermented pancake that I love eating. And that is definitely the meal that I would be having. Okay. I've had it. I like Indian food and was actually just this weekend telling my wife, I'm a very adventurous eater. My wife is not an adventurous eater. And so I just said to her, I said, I really am craving Indian food, but neither she nor my son, they're not adventurous eaters. I said, neither of you will go with me to have Indian food. So I, I have had those <laughs> before. So good, good. Awesome. <laughs> and then you selected number five. If you could spend the day with one person from history, living or otherwise, who would it be and why? Wow, 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 wow. Uh, that is a really hard question as well. But I've been really thinking about 
Martin Luther King Jr. And not only because of the philosophy, sometimes in a way that we try to put him in a box about what it means to work together in unity towards change, but also the self-reflective philosophy that he had. Because if you read, he wrote like five or six books. Mm -hmm. And if you actually read some of that, it was a lot about like, how do we change from within? And he really anchored onto love and uh, mercy, just like, you know, I think now I think about Brian Stevenson and all the work he's doing and how they're using it to transform themselves as they transform the world. And I, I think I want to just really understand what that feels like to be with that person at that level. Well, I appreciate you giving us such thoughtful answers, and I appreciate you making a few moments out of your busy schedule for us, especially early in the morning on West Coast time where you are. And so with that, that is going to bring us to the close of another episode of the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast. If you like what you heard, please make sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe so you know when new episodes are available. We want to once again thank our guest, Dr. Raj Sundar, for joining us today. So thank you, sir. Thanks for having me, Julian.